0: Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Fordi der er krig i Europa og fordi voldsomme ting sker, så har vi lige ændret planerne en lille smule. I den her uge skulle jeg have talt med den fantastiske fransk-marokkanske forfatter Leila Slimani. Men det har vi udskudt til næste uge, fordi jeg har fået mulighed for at få et interview med et af dette dagbladets store stjerner. En af vores helte og en af vores vejledere nemlig den britiske økonom Adam Tooze, der opvokset i London og bor i New York. Adam Tooze fik et kæmpe gennembrud for en global kritisk offentlighed, da han udgav bogen Crashed i 2018, som nok er den bedste udlægning overhovedet af finanskrisen. Han har en helt særlig metode, hvor han tager idéer, teknokratiske initiativer, makroøkonomiske planer, centralbankers handlinger og sætter det hele sammen og viser, hvordan magt bliver udøvet i det 21. århundrede. Han går så tæt på kapitalismen, den kan forekomme fuldstændig uoverstigeligt. Og så alligevel er det sådan, når man har set på kapitalismen sammen med Adam Smith, så forstår man, hvor svært den er at overvinde én gang for alle, men også for alle de små sidder hvor man kan lave noget om. Han er en brillant analytiker og en enestående historiker. Han har skrevet tidligere om første verdenskrig. Det var en af hans første bøger, der handlede om The Great War og det, der kom ud af den. Og så har han skrevet om finanskrisen. Og hans seneste bog hedder Shutdown. Den udkom på engelsk i 2021 og er en fuldstændig suveræn læsning. af særligt det økonomiske svar på coronapandemien. Hans helt overraskende konklusion var at økonomisk var svaret på corona faktisk en revolution. Man brød med dogmer og doktriner, der havde præget vestlig politik i fire årtier og gjorde noget helt nyt. Men denne revolution førte overhovedet ikke til en forandring af magtforholdene. Tværtimod, de rige blev endnu rigere, og uligheden blev endnu større. Så det var en konservativ revolution. Nu er shutdown kommet på dansk på Dagbladet Informationsforlag under titlen Nedlukket, hvordan corona rystede verdensøkonomien. Det er et rigtig godt tidspunkt nu faktisk, at gå tilbage og tale om coronapandemien. Fordi vi går i den forestillingsverden i Danmark, at det er slut. Nu er vi færdige med corona, nu handler det hele om krigen. Men langt de fleste steder i verden, er corona en meget større trussel mod folks liv og sundhed, end krigen i Ukraine er. Der er millioner, som sulter i Afrika, Verdensbanken har forudsagt, at der vil være et par millioner, der dør af hungersnød, som følge af shutdown inden for de næste 10 år. Så det er nu, vi skal huske på, at corona stadigvæk er, for det er en pandemi, det betyder det globalt. Men der er selvfølgelig også en anden grund til, at jeg er meget glad for at tale med Adam Tews. Det er, at han forstår krig, og han forstår økonomi. Og vi er i en situation, hvor vi har erstattet Krishandlinger med økonomiske handlinger. Vi fører en slags economic warfare i øjeblikket med sanktionerne imod Rusland og imod Putin. I den her samtale taler jeg med ham om det hele. Om kapitalismen, hvordan man som intellektuel ændrer den. Vi taler om finanskrisen, vi taler om coronaepidemien, og så taler vi selvfølgelig om krigen og hvad en verden, der bliver skabt efter den. So, uh, let's get to it. Uh, so, Adam, thank you again for taking your time and, and talking to us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I want to ask you first about uh, the aspirations of your work, because it's clear when reading you and following you that you belong to some kind of a progressive position and that, that you have a background on the left, and there's definitely a normative aspiration in what you do. On the other hand, there's always also something that I appreciate a lot, which is this way of insisting about all the aspects of power, the complex mechanisms of of power. And, you know, we always say about capitalism here, the further you're away from it, the easier it is to be radically critical about it. The closer you Mm. get to it, the harder it is. And I don't know if it's right to see this tension in your work, but I'm just curious how you balance this.
1: I think that's a very perceptive reading and I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yes, I do think of my central problem as being one increasingly of, of, uh, of realism in a sense, right? I mean, realism, what, how, what would a realistic progressive politics look like? And I think one of the minimum criteria it has to fulfill is an honest engagement with the details. Cause the devil is in the details. I think of modernity as, you know, constituted out of these hyper complex systems. And I am profoundly suspicious of, of critiques, which ultimately come back to, you know, a claim, you know, it's capitalism in it is the kind of like, you know, familiar reduction. And I don't deny that. I mean, I do think of capitalism as being the encompassing problem in a sense, but Grasping it, understanding it, understanding its dynamism, its complexity, its fast moving pace, understanding its relationship to other systems like those of military power and the state, um, understanding its relationship to ideology in a complex sense, I just think is an absolutely non-trivial challenge. Um, And to that extent, I mean, my inspiration, it sounds highfalutin, but I mean, it's literally like, you know, what one imagines somebody like Karl Marx actually doing in the 1840s and 50s, because for him, understanding capitalism was a daily challenge because it was so radically new. So what does he do? He takes himself off to the British Museum and sits down, not with. Well, he's read philosophy, of course, but his principal source in Britain, are factory inspector reports, you know, you know, and he has some rather shamefaced lines about how these at least are bourgeois civil servants you have to take seriously because they know something about the mystery of the factory. And that impulse seems to me to be the original one. Right. That's why I'm so fascinated by macrofinance, but also by science studies and, you know, all of those areas where you see critical knowledge getting into the weeds, really getting into the complexity. And also where you see critical knowledge operating on the principle that probably folks inside the machine who aren't blind to its problems have something to tell you about how it works. Like genuinely, you aren't going to find it in some classic Marxist text of political economy in the 1970s. What makes capitalism work? in 2021 or 2022 for that you're much better served quite likely at least as my hypothesis it's my it's my wager by going to something like the bank of international settlements where you have thousands of brilliant economists struggling with how finance works now and this was the wager of my book crashed and it's the same with shutdown and in a sense it's the daily practice also of the newsletter is to try and force myself and force our readers and it is absolutely a collective effort of staying as it were on the wave as it moves, like actually staying on the, on the crest of that wave, because it's so dynamic, it's so fast moving. And you can see it's, if you now, the one I did this morning was about the difficulty Ukrainian refugees having in exchanging Ukrainian currencies for euros or sloty and why it is the ECB can't respond, you know, and that's an incredibly tricky technical issue. Little issue, it would seem, but it's incredibly revealing about big issues of sovereignty and all this talk that Europe has right now. So that kind of practice of trying to find in the mechanics and in the constantly evolving frontier of what power and how power operates and working from within it in the sense that you take seriously the knowledge that's generated from inside That's that's absolutely a kind of increasingly self-conscious practice. I can't say I started with a huge program, (laughs) though I I read Latour and Foucault and Marx, you know, the usual repertoire. But I'm I for me, it synthesizes and aggregates in the business of doing it rather than, as it were, I didn't set out with a program. But that has become the program for sure. And I think your book, uh, Crash,
0: was very revealing to, to me personally and to us here at the Information because we were writing so many articles about capitalism at the time. And actually, none of them struck the heart of what was causing the financial crisis. So, all the. And it turned out to be just analysis of symbols, basically. And it turned out to be moralizing. And we were absolutely impotent when it really came to the matter. But but then I, I think also that there's another understanding in the work you do and the work others do, that you're one voice among many others, that it's a collective effort that you contribute with your analysis. You're helping people, criticizing bad leftist policies
1: and, and ideas. And so, so you're part of a larger orchestra. I liked, I mean, for sure. I mean, that sense of, that for me is also part of this logic of working from the inside is is and it's a it's a way of countering you know hubristic self-aggrandizing We know one of the besetting sins of intellectual life is that you imagine yourself at the heart of some kind of drama and and you, you to my mind you can be but only as it were by virtue of actually being part of a team right that's the real condition of this like very few people can Achieve the kind of mastery is not the right word, but the sort of synthetic, aggregative knowledge in themselves. It's I think it's a it's a silly idea. And um, I come from a natural science background. You know, no one publishes a serious paper in molecular biology with about ten co-authors, right? That's a completely normal kind of setup. And. That, for me, is why things like social media are so interesting, because you can, as you know, on Twitter right now, if you're in the right spaces, you can convene literally in seconds, a flash seminar on any particular issue that you're interested in. If you have cultivated the contacts and reciprocated with people and they will be there and help you understand something immediately. So that for me is 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 part of the practice. And it's it is critical. It's critical, both as it were, against you know power and the way it operates and its hypocrisies. Um, but it's also critical towards, you know, one's own camp. And it's asking, as it were, progressive and critical and left wing politics to rise to the challenge of understanding the present and recognize it. Um, but it is, I hope, collaborative above all else. Yes. And I and it's been psycho I'm deeply preoccupied with with issues of mental health. And certainly from my point of view, that sense of being part of a collective has been restorative, I want to say, I mean, it it was a restorative in the first instance. And since I've, you know, found it, it's also been enormously sustaining. Um, And, you know, whenever I'm faced with a sort of challenging moment of, you know, depression or whatever, the question simply becomes, what can you usefully do? Like, what can, at this moment, what can you, what, which group of people can you help to understand which problem? Like, that is a restorative for me, like it, it rebuilds my energy and enables me to go on.
0: Well, I can definitely say that you're part of a lot of conversations. And along with with others like Piketty and Sugman, who I believe are also very, they have a normative aspiration, but they're analytically convincing as well. And you can see that they're shaping something in a kind of global public that 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 is influencing politics.
1: It is good to see the way economists in general have in fact, and I think 2008 was important in this respect, I mean, I have opened up to a broader public and and you know paul Krugman was a was an instance of this at an early stage, somebody who moved from being a very orthodox gatekeeper to an enabler, I think, really, of a more heterodox conversation from the early 2000s. Uh, and uh, we follow in in their footsteps. i mean, for, for me, it's particularly it's particularly you know, gratifying in the sense that I was once an economist stopped being an economist and now found myself in, in the company of economists, you know, very illustrious economists and, and, and in some sense, apparently performing a useful function. Um, so yes, I think of, I absolutely would think of Zuckman Piketty as, as part of this, but also in macro finance, the likes of Daniela Garbo, for instance, and the whole critical finance, uh, wing has been has been an extraordinary positive money as one of the NGO groups. It's also a, you know, it's an intersection between academia, between journalism, folks like yourselves with whom we sustain regular conversations, um, and the think tank world and then policy and business. So, you know, there's a remarkable openness. The thing about capitalism is that it's, you know, it is actually pragmatic ultimately. So if you offer knowledge that appears to have a more powerful grip on reality, it's surprising how keen they are to hear it, even if it's critical, right? Because there are ways of making money out of a bad situation if you can just understand it correctly. So there are a lot of, you know, um, Sultan Poshar at Credit Suisse is the most obvious case in point. I mean, an essential read to understand the mechanics of the monetary system. He's very technical. But if you can burrow your way in and figure out, you know, what he's going on about, it's always illuminating. And he's just the standout example, I think, of this intersection between NGO work, uh, think tanks, academia, journalism and, um, you know, business uh, economists.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting when Sushana Suboff's book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, came out and we published it here uh, at, at our, our small newspaper and publishing house and we had People who never cared about our newspaper before, people, top CEOs who are very interested in and grassroots organizations uh, as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great book. Congrats for doing it. I mean, uh, her concept of the big other, I think, is a really is a really fascinating one. Uh, and the intersections between tech and money, I mean, much as I'm critical of the crypto space and, and find its politics, most of them, are, you know, frankly, obnoxious. But the intersection between the the space of, as it were, critical thinking about the digital world and critical thinking about capitalism, and especially financial capitalism, has been very fertile of late. So, yeah, no, Zuboff's really a – that book's a, <laughs> it's really a mind-blowing intervention. Yeah,
0: and I think you can point to shortcomings in the book that it's not the same kind of exploitations, but – it is the first grand theory, and it gives the word and the concept and a new way of looking. You just need to hear the word and then read the first 30 pages of the book, and you're going.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
0: To, turn, to turn to your wonderful book, uh, Shutdown, which is still the best book I read about COVID and the response to COVID, I think now is a very, very good time to return to that book, because here in Denmark, the sense is that now everything is about the war, and now COVID mm. is over, and lockdown has been lifted we can do whatever we want we're no longer afraid of it and 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 then you look at africa and you see there's huge food crisis there's there as a result of of some of the actions we took you look at china and you look at shanghai you look at hong kong with the fifth wave and even and even germany And when the first part of COVID, there's a quote in your book, which is very good from Lenin Moreno, the president of Ecuador, who said that this was, in fact, the first world war, because there was a Mm -hmm. sense, the first real world war, that we were being in the same effort all over the world. And now I think it's a completely different situation, that we're different places
1: in the pandemic. How do you see it? I think that's right. And, you know, one one may only hope and wish that the Danes turned out to be right and that you do get to sail off into your happy future beyond this, you know, which in fact means the Ukraine crisis. But, um, but it is a gamble and it has been a gamble and we have, we, you know, our relationship to pandemic threats before, um, COVID struck was essentially one of riding our luck. We were proceeding on the basis that we would get through that turned out to be wrong. And in the aftermath, and in the protracted effort to contain its effects, we continue to proceed on that basis, because at the most fundamental level, we failed to organize a comprehensive global response to this disease. And to that extent, we have failed to grasp its essential reality, which is it is that it is indeed a pandemic pan means everything, everyone, it's all inclusive. It's potentially transmissible to every single human body in the planet, all 7.85 billion of us, right? And it hasn't yet passed through all of us and it continues to mutate. And so to the extent that we kind of declare it over, we, you know, that's our right to do. And like, you know, all hail to the sovereign Danish people in making this choice. But the disease may have other things on its, You know, it doesn't have a mind. The The, the disease may simply have some other logic that frustrates us. So, and that is the gamble that we're taking. You know, I'm setting off on a summer that I hope will be full of travel to Europe, but I, at this point, am not convinced that I, I will be able to do all the trips I intend to make because, you know, there are there are, there are basically two developments. Right, there appears to be a new and highly infectious strain that's spreading out of Central Europe, and and the other one is that we have this lurking nightmare scenario in China. Where because they proceeded in what is ultimately the most rational mode, which was a zero COVID policy, but then attempted to implement a zero COVID policy in one country, you know, to sort of paraphrase the Stalinist formula. Um, And that will work up to a point until you run into a variant as infectious as Omicron. And then you're in real trouble. And there the disaster that is lurking there stems from a real I mean, it's a freakish state of affairs in which they just do not appear to have concentrated their vaccinations, which aren't terribly effective anyway, but nevertheless would help on the old people. So, you know, China has vaccinated, distributed more vaccine doses than any other country on the planet, over 3 billion doses. But they have 50 million people over the age of 60 who haven't been vaccinated. And in Hong Kong, 60% of the population over 80 have not been vaccinated. So it seems to be some sort of perverse you know, effect of the Chinese respect for the elderly that they've essentially allowed elderly people to opt out or decided that they should guard them against, you know, whatever. There's some sort of low level. It isn't a general anti-vax sentiment because the Chinese have distributed over three billion doses, but they haven't targeted them at the most vulnerable people. So the nightmare is it's going to be like England in March where you have March, 2020, where you have the epidemic sweeping through very vulnerable elderly populations in care homes. And people will die. I mean, in Hong Kong, the mortality in Hong Kong has been amongst the worst we've seen at any point anywhere in the world, at any point in the epidemic. So it's it's a tragedy. It's an absolute disaster waiting to happen. And That would completely rewrite the script of the last couple of years, right? Because China would then end up as a late failure, rather than the early success story, which is how it frames the, the book shutdown. But in other words, we're not out of the woods by any means, you know? and and you know it may it may be that it may be the case that we get lucky in Europe, and the, the the next variant that emerges is not very lethal, and we don't have very rapid hospital, very high hospitalization rates, and so we can continue on as normal. But we shouldn't we shouldn't imagine that that means it's over. That just means that we got lucky. There was always
0: this contrast in, in COVID that we realized, like uh, our friend from Ecuador said, that this was a, f- a very, very global phenomenon. Yeah. But there was always also this very national focus on the yeah. response. And we remember in the beginning how the German and the French who would just been preaching to the British that there are no way that we can suspend the four basic liberties of the of yeah. the European Union. Th- they dispensed it overnight. Uh, yeah. So there was always this, that that when it when it got tough that we were acting as nation state and did we ultimately in 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 europe fail to act globally and and just acted nationally when it when is that I what mean, we're confronted with in, now
1: i mean in fairness to europe i think that was the initial reaction and it was worldwide and, and one of the one of the attempts of the book is to not write one of those you know trump bashing books that the americans love or johnson bashing books that the british love not out of any love on my part for either Boris johnson or donald trump but just out of a sense that this is not really an adequate framework for understanding what turned out to be a pretty comprehensive failure in the end no one comes out of this looking very good it turns out maybe not even the chinese um perhaps the south koreans and the new zealanders but you know it's it's a very small group but I mean, in, in fairness to Europe, after that initial, as it were, disaster, and it was a disaster, um you know, there were two moments, where is it where we see something else? One is the next gen EU fiscal package, which changes the framework for EU policy and will become, I think, a benchmark of how Europe can respond. And one hopes it's the template for how Europe responds to the Ukraine crisis, the war in Ukraine, Russian aggression against Ukraine, let's not call it a Ukraine crisis. Um, And the other moment is the vaccine program, which started badly, is afflicted by all sorts of procurement snafus of various types, bad luck in picking the vaccine, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, you have to say, Europe is the standout exception globally, in the sense that it's the one region in the world where access to vaccines was not primarily regulated by income level. That isn't to say that there aren't differences and that Bulgaria didn't opt for cheaper vaccines. But nevertheless, there was a mechanism to offset that brutal logic of income determining vaccine access. And it couldn't have been done any other way in Europe. It had to be done that way. They paid a price for doing it that way, but I think it was a price worth paying and it is something to celebrate and it deserves recognition. And perhaps the book is a little little bit unfair. And if I finished it too early because I had to finish the book essentially in the spring of 2021, I think I would in retrospect have given more emphasis to the success of the pan-European vaccine program because it is a success story. But your question was, did Europe act globally? And on that front, unfortunately, the answer is an emphatic no. Again, it's by no means the worst in its parochialism. And Europe was generous, for instance, in allowing large amounts of vaccine production in Europe to be exported to other countries. They were overwhelming the other rich countries, but nevertheless, they allowed the vaccine export to go ahead. So unlike the Americans who effectively blocked it, monopolized their national vaccine production. But what Europe no more than the United States or China or Japan managed to organize is a truly effective global campaign. And what we really mean here is Africa, right? The only part of the world where there is essentially a complete white on the map of global vaccination until quite recently is Africa. Africa is Europe's neighbor and we have to Europeans have to understand this and get to grips with it. It is one of the great challenges of the next half century. And this has to be done in a way which isn't simply one of Afro pessimism and catastrophe narratives about Africa or a narrative of African threat. And we have to do something about this because otherwise they're all going to try and emigrate to Europe, right? Neither of none of those narratives are going to be adequate to the situation. But the, it is undoubtedly a huge factor that ought to figure much larger in the European imagination about what's coming up next. And the vaccines are the prime opportunity. For Europe to recognize this. Let America take care of Latin America or China. Let, let Asia take care of itself. The Indians have the capacity to do this. The combine where you have close proximity between extremely capable high income countries and the largest group of people in the world who would not reached by vaccines is the north south axis between Europe and Africa. And that should mean something. And so to that extent, I do think the failure of Europe is particularly important here. And not, not only, and this will be the obvious thing to invoke because of colonial heritage, but I again think that's hugely unproductive. No one needs to invoke that. We're neighbours. That's the reason it matters. right? And large parts of the African elite speak European languages. And that should matter something as well. Again, without going into sort of the post-colonial hangovers of Francophonie or whatever. It's just a fact about the fact that these societies are, through their elites, very relatively speaking, very accessible. Right? You, can, you can actually converse with much of East and West Africa in English and French. And and this ought to count for something as a way of, you know, uh, envisioning a new future. And on that, in that respect, uh, Europe has failed. It's not for nothing that Europe hosted a major summit with Africa at the beginning of this year. It was totally overshadowed by Ukraine on the one hand and by the events in in the Sahel, the events in Mali and so on, which have totally destabilized Europe's position. But that for me is one of the real takeaways here. Yes, at that level, the failure is global, and it's specific to Europe, and it's specifically about Europe and Africa.
0: And, and I think it's the nature of a book like Shutdown, that, that it's written in time, and, and the conclusions are, are not the last conclusions. They're the best assessment of the situation that you can give at a certain time. That's also how, how you, you you read it. I think it's very, very convincing. Uh, in in the book you you say in the, in the beginning and the end that the chinese seem analytically superior to the europeans mm-hmm. and the um, and the americans that the americans and that are very focused on their grand national narrative yeah. and also on the left with this green new deal yeah. uh, and the europeans are are absorbed by this poly crisis uh, talk of of juncker and I, I i wonder whether that's still your your point that they analytically in terms of Geopolitics; they, they, they are intellectually superior to
1: us. (laughs) Well, it was a deliberate provocation. Um, I mean, a very deliberate provocation. Um, And the my, I mean, my point is indeed that like that that there has been a dawning awareness, and Ukraine in the current moment simply reinforces this. Like, a dawning awareness that that we're dealing with a lot of stuff at once, right? Yes, I mean, if you exactly. are wide awake and trying to follow the news, your overwhelming impression is just being of being overwhelmed and not being able to tie the things together. Right. And, and John Juncker bless his heart came up with this phrase he borrowed from a French theorist of complexity, which is polycrisis, which is the right way of describing what's going on. And he was thinking about the refugee crisis of 15, the Ukraine, Ukraine crisis, number one, the Eurozone crisis, the Syriza government in Greece and, you know, Juncker who um, just said, you know, Europe faces a polycrisis. And I think that's broadly speaking correct. It just doesn't give you very much grip on what's happening. Right. And the Americans also think polycrisis, but being American, they think of it as essentially just a huge national drama. So America's media, the liberal smart media are full of, you know, these more or less impressive existential. And this was the period of Trump. I mean, I wrote this book as the future of American democracy in a more literal sense than I ever imagined experiencing was in doubt. We didn't know whether the clear outcome of an election will be respected by the party that had lost. We still don't know whether that will be the case in 2022 later this year or in 2024. But as I was finishing this book, we were in utter suspense. I don't think I've ever felt, you know, political suspense in quite that way before and um so that was you know america's problem and standing back from this and, and working on the assumption that we are moving towards a more multipolar world it does seem to me that we are, it's incumbent upon us in the west to look around and look at what other interpretive offers the germans would say a klarungsangebot right you know an interpretive offer is available from other people and And there is China and it has a huge think tank scene and they're full of people trying to figure out what 21st century Marxism is supposed to be about and Xi Jinping thought. And you know, it's tempting to just toss it out and go, this is stupid ideological boilerplate. But if you look at it more closely and sort of develop a little bit of a hide, you need to have a slightly thick hide to get through this stuff. It's no more boilerplate than what comes out of Washington or comes out of the EU. It exhibits certain modes of thought. And one of the ones that was preeminent in China is risk analysis, because this is Xi Jinping issued this like declaration that the cadres had to be focused on risk analysis. And so what did they start thinking about? Well, the theme was, you know, challenges not seen in a century, which is their way of talking about the crisis of globalization as a new epochal moment, which I think is a good concept. I think we are in a moment we haven't really seen, you know, in a century, we are on an ascending curve of radicalization. And then if you looked inside the thinking of certain security bureaucrats that work very closely with Xi, they actually start outlining what Juncker didn't deliver, namely how the bits of the polycrisis hang together. And they could be ones of convergence where very different things suddenly feed into the same cocktail, or they could be resonance where, as it were, the problems inside one area of society resonate with the problems inside another. And that's very reminiscent, I think, of our COVID experience where, you know, the, the crisis in your marriage was reflected in your inability <laughs> to decide about who gets vaccinated or whatever, right? Or the tensions you have with your teenage child like right, amplified. Um, and then there's induction, which is a spot of almost spontaneous action where two things which appear to have nothing to do with each other, like the pot, you know, that sits on the induction hooker, suddenly boils, like for, for reasons which are unclear. Or amplification, which is a really nice way of thinking, I think, about Black Lives Matter. You know, one man Another black man, one has to say, is killed by the American police somewhere in the Midwest of the United States. And all of a sudden we have a global movement. Now if you, that's very impressive for social scientists, it's kind of mesmerizing politically, it's empowering. And from the point of view of a Chinese security bureaucrat, it's terrifying because it means that anyone who gets killed anywhere could suddenly become a martyr and this whole thing could explode on you. Right, so. What I find interesting is that out of the pressure of their, their demand for omniscience and total control, right? Certain sorts of rather interesting thought emerge in China and the provocation. I don't really drive this home very hard in shutdown, but I frame the book at the beginning and the end deliberately by coming back to them to say, well, if that's what they're offering, what have we got? What's our answer? You know, If my project is some sort of left liberalism, what's my answer to their diagnosis? What is our answer collectively? Shouldn't we be working on that? If we want to claim that, you know, liberalism needs to front up to the Chinese challenge, we need to front up intellectually as well and actually deliver some of the linkages, our own account of the linkages that they are clearly recognizing. But
0: I think when I look at this crisis now, and I think it's unclear, at this very moment, I think the geopolitical power relations are actually unclear. That there's one way of looking at it saying, well, 141 countries in the UN General Assembly condemned the Russian invasion yeah. uh, of Ukraine. And and there's a strong tendency still, I think, in Europe and America to think of us as the world. The whole yeah. world is condemning. The whole world is, is, is condemning. And I'm a little, f- it scares me a little because it seems that we intellectually are not really at the height of the situation and understanding that, for instance, Africa is very, very important and they're not necessarily agreeing divided. with us.
1: They're absolutely divided on the Ukraine issue. Like right? South Africa abstained. Um, governments representing half, more than half the world's population abstained. It may be true that the number of states voted on quote-unquote our side, but fifty what governments representing exactly. 51% of the world's population abstained on this issue. And that's because China and India abstained, and they're huge. And they're not just those countries. They're China and India. Like game-changingly, all of us wrapped up together don't add up to as many people as live in one of them. You wrap Europe, the United States, Japan, the G7 all up together, and you are still lower, less than live in either one of those two giants. And they abstained. And that matters. I mean, it ought to matter for sure. It certainly should rob us of any chance of saying this is the world's biggest crisis. This is, I mean, the Eurocentrism, and I don't say this because I'm not profoundly shaken as a European. I am. But precisely in the moment of that kind of that, that, you know, this sense of being rocked, shouldn't we reflect on the conditions that cause us particularly to be as rocked as we are? Why is it so difficult? I mean, for the left, it's not. But why is it so difficult for mainstream pundits in both Europe and the United States to recognise, why is it so difficult to recognise the incredibly strong analogies between what's happening now and what's happened in 2003 in Iraq? Like, And I don't say that with any aim of like trivially whataboutism. It's not the same kind of breach of international law, but they are clearly both breaches of international law by any conventional definition. And they involve the use of remarkably similar levels of military force, about 150,000 men in both cases. They were both premeditated assaults on an independent sovereign state for what turned out to be entirely specious reasons, right? Which left the rest of the world just completely dumbfounded. The difference is the power relation, right? Russia is a medium sized contender, which then found itself on the receiving end of very dramatic sanctions from the West. The United States and Europe and especially the UK found themselves on the back on the, you know, in faced with protests, including by their own citizens. And I was one of those people to protesting that war in London and treated by with utter contempt by our then government, um, for doing so. But, but the fundamental, you know, the fundamental inability to see the parallels this, this, you know, and it's an event, especially if you're dealing with German colleagues. And I don't, I mean, I don't mean to an Austrian colleagues, I don't mean to, 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 to sort of beat up on them, but the, you know, the, the phraseology is often, you know, it's so difficult to understand how this could be happening in Europe as opposed to Yemen or as opposed to Iraq or Afghanistan or central Africa, right? you know, it's like, and he's completely unselfconscious. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's, it's almost emphatic. Like, no, no, I really mean it. What I really mean is I don't understand how this could be happening here to people like us. I, that's what I, re- I really want you to understand that. Like the border guard who said, well, well, of course we can't let the black people in because they're not like us, like to the camera. In fact, the journalists were repeating the same line. Whereas in fact, those those African and Indian stu- people who were in Ukraine were upwardly mobile middle-class people in search of a relatively cheap Western education in Ukraine's universities. They're in other words, just like us too. Like, but not, you know, the, the the racial element is so manifest. It's so, it is indeed, I think, a real. It's kind of like a black hole of Eurocentrism. I mean, people cannot escape its gravitational pull. Even I think when they're aware of of what's being exposed, it's it, it nevertheless sucks them in.
0: It really scares me because we must understand that if we want to win this battle that it cannot be two countries in the old world fighting or uh, Ukraine against Russia just just fighting it out. And we're taking the money from our aid, from our assistance to Africa to pay for Ukrainian mm. refugees here. And, and we must think, I believe, that this is about bigger countries invading smaller countries who need rules to protect them. We must make it an appealing case uh, mm around the world. And and when we think of we are the world condemning him, I think we're not helping ourselves shaping a better world after that.
1: No, I mean, I think you could even make a potent argument that, right, that that, um, it would actually be rather an effective counter to Putin to say that, yes, we would like to arbitrate a peace negotiation, but we would like, for instance, the committee to be led by Kenya's incredibly articulate ambassador to the UN, who explained so powerfully to the Russians that, yes, indeed, lots of people live with post-colonial boundaries that they're not particularly happy with. Right? And, and he gave this extraordinary speech to the Russian delegate, essentially saying, look, we understand you have grievances. I'll, let me take you to my continent where everyone has grievances about the boundaries left by Europeans as they exited after 1945. And yet, as the Organization of African Unity took essentially a principled decision that one thing they were not going to do this of course doesn't mean that there are not sources of other sorts of violence, but one thing that African States were basically not going to engage in is territorial revision. And with the singular exception so far as Sudan, they've avoided territorial revision on a large scale. Eritrea may also count as a case, right? But they're very rare by comparison. So to my mind, the entire, logic of our position will be much stronger precisely if we did try and globalize it in that kind of creative way. I mean, Joseph Borrell's got quite a lot of flack for saying that he thought the Chinese ought to mediate and you can kind of see why. Um, but nevertheless, at some level, and the the Russians would probably be too keen on that option. But the sense in, I think it would genuinely be helpful for Europe in some sense to recognize that this doesn't make, as it were, it the center of the world anymore, but it makes it the object of global attention, which has to sort this problem out. Because otherwise the food supply system and the energy supply system, the large parts of the world, which are much more vulnerable than Europe, as much as Europe is feeling the pain, it's going to be much worse for a country like Egypt or Lebanon or Ethiopia, potentially, they need peace because they cannot allow this disruption of flows to go on in the way that it has. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the Eurozone episode where, you know, one of the truly freakish elements of the Eurozone history is that the IMF's largest program in history was to underwrite the early European stability mechanism, you know, that was strung together in the spring of 2010. like in a French boss of the IMF in an age of globalization was mobilizing hundreds of billions of dollars to backstop a solution to a European problem. I mean, it's almost as though we were back in 1945, right? And, and and all the way through to 2012, you had delegates from Mexico and Indonesia and China and, and Brazil sitting around at IMF meetings being confronted with the latest discussion of a Greek program. And, no, this is just a level of incomprehension at some point where these European crises, which really ought to be capable of being resolved within the orbit of, of Europe, explode. And, and then... As the European as from the point of view of Europe are very easily understood as universal in their significance and of course they do have a universal significance but not qua Europe right but by virtue exactly as you were saying of a really egregious instance of breach of international law um so it's it's really it's it's really uh, um yeah um, it, there's no doubt at all that it, it you know, assesses me as you know from from my writing in the newsletter but i but i do think we need to struggle with this warred against our own tendency to get sucked into this drama as, um, you know, as this sort of, is this, is this, this necessary. The thing about it is that it's so unnecessary in fact, right? That is the, that is, I think after all, the overwhelming, the overwhelmingly important point. This is something that should not have happened under any circumstances. The Russians must feel the same way. I mean, it should absolutely simply have not happened.
0: In in this context, I'm curious about how you see the sanctions as a way of warfare because I think basically on the left in Europe, we're very happy about the sanctions because it's a non-military kind of warfare. And point one, we're scared of the nuclear bomb. And I think people here in Europe are really scared. People mm. in, Swe- in Sweden and, and our neighboring countries are are scared. And point two, there is a mili- there's an intervention fatigue that is very, very widespread. Here. So there is an enthusiasm about the sanctions and, you know, you hit the oligarchs this time, uh, which people like, which I like as, as well, just watching it, uh, the yak burn. I, 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 I like that. I admit to that. But I'm afraid what this, what these sanctions will do to the rest of the world, how they will mm-hmm. create poverty and how they will be perceived around the world.
1: Yes. And also that slippage that you started with is highly significant, isn't it? Because sanctions, I think are generally conceived as a form of crazy legal punishment, right? Their origin lies in, well, it's a dual origin, like and, and one origin is in the sort of League of Nations notion of a peace enforcement mechanism, um, or a, a form of punishment for breakers of international law. And then there's the other origin of sanctions, which is an essentially in blockade, in other words, in a mode of economic warfare, war making they're two very different positions. One is the position of the judge who decides over the fate of an assailant who's attacked somebody who's uh, engaged in an, an assault and therefore ends up going to jail. The other one is the position of somebody who sees an assault going on on the street and joins the fight on the side of the person that they perceive to be the innocent victim. Those are two obviously very different positionalities. And we slid from one to the other over that first weekend of the war. Because exactly. I think we imagined the war would be end over quickly. We imagined the Russians would march in, steamroller the Ukraine, and then sanctions would be used to punish the Russians for what they'd done. Instead, what's happened is I completely agree with you that the things we call sanctions are actually a a form of war making against Russia. They are a way of solidarizing with uh, Ukraine in an attempt to actually shift the terms of the struggle against Russia to inflict so much harm on it that it has to stop. They're a form of siege, essentially against Russia. And that's a very, very significant transition. Um, hugely significant transition, very dangerous as Putin immediately spelled out that like literally within 12 hours of us having announced central bank sanctions, he was threatening us with nuclear weapons. And, and there was a, a logic to that escalation that's very real. So we should understand the connection here. Right the Russians are not allowing not going to, I think, in the end, allow us to play the game of innocence. They don't think, well, we'll see how far he's willing to go. it will be a calculus of utility one hopes on his part rather than something else, which would be truly terrifying, some sort of rage or symbolic you know assertion that need that he has. but it's it is it is a really striking development that we should have moved towards truly comprehensive assaults on the Russian financial system, and that's what central bank sanctions are. Everything else pales by comparison, it doesn't really matter uh, in the middle of a war, which is undecided on the side of one side. Um, so Europe should not be under any illusion. I think about the implications of that for its relations with Russia, the next step would clearly be to actually start not using, not buying Russian oil and gas, and that would be the further escalation. And, um, you know, Europe has shown itself quite slow moving on that score for reasons, which are obvious, um, though they may be, they may be, they may be debatable. The impact on, yes, I mean, the impact on Russian society is extremely severe. And um, if you, with the sanctions mode that we have chosen, the central bank sanctions are, you know, there was a lot of talk about trying to hit the oligarchs and so on. And there is a sort of gleeful appreciation of that. I thought there was a very telling moment during Biden's State of the Union where a bunch of American congressional representatives who don't normally think of themselves as, you know, punitive pursuers of, 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 of wealth, you know, we cheering the rafters as he promised that they were going to go after Russian oligarchs. Um, generally speaking, I think as a matter of of mental health and the sort of intellectual clarity, we ought to refer to oligarchs more generally, right? And so exactly. there's, a, there's, a peculiar, there's a peculiar populism in targeting theirs and not ours. This isn't a, Jeff Bezos is not the same as a Sechin or somebody like that. That's a false analogy, but nevertheless, you can see the point I'm making. But the central bank sanctions that we used they do huge harm to ordinary russians right they, they they because what they do is devalue the currency they they cause a comprehensive blow across the russian system and that was the first weapon we used the first really big weapon and then out from there yes i mean the the consequences for the global economy are very severe i think the one that we underestimated is the food side there was a lot of talk ahead of the crisis about oil and gas the food debate was a little bit more limited, but that may in fact turn out to be the one that matters most for regular people in large parts of the world, you know, especially in the low income world. And this could be a point where they
0: say, well, we are already starving. We're starving yeah. uh, amongst other things from from your COVID failures, from the way you locked your society down, from supply chain crisis caused not only but also by your efforts and now you're waiting a war in your part of the world that is causing us further damage here.
1: Yes, I mean, I think in fairness, we should say, of course, that sanctions exempt food and the Americans yes. will insist on this. The reason why food supply is disrupted is not sanctions. Um, you know, the You know, the people who do sanctions are smart liberal people just like us and they've done the math on this and they recognize that imposing sanctions on pharmaceuticals and food is not good politics. That doesn't mean, however, that a sanctioned state or a country in a state of war like Ukraine and Russia, are are capable of making food exports like they normally would. And so the mechanism really of disruption is things like Lloyd's in London won't ensure. So right now, as soon as, you know, there's any risk really of, of military action affecting, you know, significant values at sea it's very difficult to get insurance. So then the big shipping companies won't go there. And so then you can't ship the grain out. So you don't have to have a sanctions mechanism. It's just that the collateral damage and disruption spreads. And that I don't think again, you see, I think part of the reason why we didn't reckon with it was that we didn't expect the war to go on. We expected the war to be short, we expected Russia to be in full control. And then of course, no one would have an interest in cutting off. Russian and Ukrainian grain supplies to the world. What we didn't reckon with was a full all out war all along the Ukrainian coast of the black sea. That's no, that's just not something that anyone had really contemplated. So it's the resistance of the Ukrainians, which is the wild card here. And, you know, it'd be totally perverse to say it's actually not sanctions. It's the resistance of the Ukrainians that's causing the problem. That's not my point, but it's the resistance of the Ukrainians that has blown open everyone's calculus. It's exposed the inadequacy of the calculus of the West as much as the inadequacy of the calculus of the Russians, not as much, but as well as the inadequacy as the calculus of the Russians. It is obviously a left-wing thought in, in political theory. You know, folks like me who who deal in technocracy and its logics and power and are often confronted with critics who say, well, you, you discount the role of resistance. You don't focus enough on opposition. <laughs> you don't understand the grassroots. And it's true. And I generally don't because I don't think it matters. Um, and, and relatively speaking, I think it's actually powerless and a lot of it is symbolic and to that extent a distraction from the main game where criticism ought to be focused. But if you ever wanted a counterexample example of the way in which genuinely popular organized resistance has totally disrupted the calculations of power, this would be it. Now, of course it isn't popular resistance in the sense that the left would use about the, you know, Podemos or something in Spain in 2011, or, or or the Zapatistas, right? It's not that. But there is an element here of popular mobilization that is very powerful, very important, and has changed the game. I mean, and, and, and war has the capacity to do that systematically. I teach Clausewitz. I was literally teaching Clausewitz as the war broke out. And I've never understood and read him in the way that I do now as reflecting this reality, right? His understanding of the logic of war as an autonomous sphere of social reality that has a very opaque, dynamic, dangerous, escalatory logic. I mean, you know, I've lived through wars before. I mean, like I've been sent, but I've never felt it as, and I've lived through wars secondhand before. I've never felt it with this force as in this moment, because that is what the Ukrainians have shown us, right? Now, presumably, if you're Arab or if you're Muslim, part of the Ummah, like you will have had this experience again and again and again—the resistance of the Mujahideen—you know—and you feel it in your in your in your spirit, right? And and that's what the Ukraine has done to Europeans this is is, and that's why I think so many people are thrilled because it appears to be the assertion of a popular sovereignty, right? This is—you tell the stories of the resistance in Denmark, and you think it's something <laughs> like this: yeah. ordinary people doing heroic things, right? That's that's as it were the legacy that that we very rightly thrill to. It's something that's treasured and carried down, or the partisan songs that the Italian left sing, or you know, like the ditto on the Spanish left, right. And and all of a sudden here it was being enacted before our eyes by this telegenic president and you know this extraordinary humorous, darkly humorous population. Um, So so that is really the that's the that's the grit in the history in the history at the moment, right? That's why we. Everything is not playing out how anyone anticipated.
0: Well, I have one last question for you, which is that at the core of your book is also the reflection whether this is the end of neoliberalism and to yeah. what extent it is. And and also the dark thought for leftists that what comes after neoliberalism is not necessarily better. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. And I'm not saying, well, this war will make a new economic order for us, but your your conclusion in the book that this is basically a conservative revolution, that you see taboos being broken and doctrines being thrown away, but basically the distribution of power remains the same. The equality is exactly the same. So to that extent, it's a conservative revolution. What we're seeing now seems a lot more radical to me, that you're Realizing that at least some of the wealth is Ill- illegitimate in our in our culture, you're realizing that this whole Merkel doctrine of wandel durch Handel that that it doesn't work that you cannot leave markets to uh, to to themselves. But I may be naive and I may be utopian. How do you see this
1: moment? Well, I think it's I think it's symptomatic that it's other people's wealth that we can recognize as illegally come by, right? Yeah. Uh, above all. I mean, it's symptomatic of that, right? That it takes an X, you know, it's other people's oligarchs that that really fundamentally put this in question. But Um, that doesn't
0: mean you can't have the consequence that looking at, they have their money in offshore, their wealth is illegitimate, how about our own? Who did we sell our football clubs to? Who did we sell political to? I think it's, sell yeah, I think it's a cumulative
1: to? process, right? I mean, you, you referred earlier on to people like Piketty and Zuckman, and you know, all credit to them, for, because they're the people who blow that blow that question open in 2011, right? The most, David Graeber was right, that the most consequential slogan that came out of Occupy was the 1%, 99% discourse. That has continued to echo down. And I would agree that the current ferocity of anti-oligarch sentiment has something to do with that. Um. Uh, the other, the other, the other dark element, however, is that insofar as uh, that I argue in the book insofar as the power balance has shifted, right? It's the geopolitical dimension of neoliberalism that's in real trouble because another way of reading neoliberalism is as an American hegemonic project. And that is profoundly in trouble. And the American response to that has been coercive, a circuitization of huge dimensions of economic and social life. Um, a rallying of the American political system around anti Chinese positions, which have then spilled open into quite anti quite open anti Asian sentiment in large parts of the American population associated also with the disease. And in fact, also in Europe as well, the opinion polls swing hard against China and against Asia in general, speaking to Chinese foreign correspondents who work in in worked in Europe throughout the crisis. It was very, very clear that they felt this very, very sensibly. So, I think that is the question, right? How far are the ongoing ruptures? How far are the ongoing crises and the crises response that we see? If they do mark a break, and let's grant that they do, how far is it a break in a positive direction? How far is it a break in a direction that could be construed as as progressive? And I think that is, that is incredibly difficult to read. And certainly as far as the political systems of Europe, I mean, the United States are concerned, I, I'm deeply pessimistic about that. That is not what we've seen, right? The, the vector product of the crisis in the U S is quite likely to be a continuing degeneration of the American political system on the right. And, and 2022, I'm afraid is going to confirm that. I, I agree with you that in Europe, it does seem much more open um the possibilities seem more open this isn't to glorify the kind of macron schultz draghi axis of you know ultra centrist reformism but it's certainly a different prospect than having to persuade joe manchin you know about <laughs> anything in the us congress which is a which is a much more difficult proposition you know and to answer a huge structural question like that by reference to those kind of political figures and that kind of manoeuvring can seem trivial, right? It can seem as though it falls short. Because the answer of are we out of neoliberalism appears to demand like a grand historic answer. We should see the horsemen riding in in the way in which we now imagine the nineteen seventies with Milton Friedman and Thatcher and Reagan and Cole and giants bestrode the earth and you know, we entered the age of neoliberalism. And I'm afraid that that isn't the way this is going to work its way out this time around. And it may depend on tactics, it may depend on maneuvering, it may depend on inchwise, small movements in this direction. And that it may depend on salvaging something from COP26 that also happened, you know, six months ago, and a whole bunch of, you know, more or less open ended and airy commitments were made that now need to be made real. To that extent, that too is, I guess, part of the realist agenda that I'm pursuing is is this question of what does a transformative politics look like? And maybe it doesn't ride in on the big horse, right? This is something one can learn from Lenin. In fact, maybe the revolution is made comrades crawling on our stomachs underneath the barbed wire. He used this image in 1918. Um, and and maybe the answer to neoliberalism is in the question of the destiny of neoliberalism is of a similar type, you know, if you know, it's like a positional war, and if we are to make any progress, it's going to be one of those kind of moves, rather than a grand Keynesian return, um, which I think many people projected onto the 2020 moment. And I think that in and of itself, almost that idea of a historic return can be quite dangerous.
0: Well, thank you so much, and I, th- I will say that one of the best places to follow all these complex tactical maneuvers, they're in your substack and in your podcast Ones and Twos, and thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us and helping us.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on again.
0: Det var så min samtale med Adam Twos. Hans bog Nedlukket kan fås på informationsforlag. Man kan gå ind på Dagbladet Informations hjemmeside under Butik, og der kan man købe den og gav videre med, at man også kan få en særligt god pris. Hvis man er optaget af Adam Tues, og gerne vil følge hans skriveri og tanker, så skal man som altid følge med i Dagbladet Information, for alle de vigtige og vigtigste tanker står i Dagbladet Information. Og hvis man ikke har fået abonnement, og man tænker, at det er alt for dyre, det er alt for besværligt, så kan jeg sige, nej, nej, nej. I går ind på information.dk, prøv nu. Derinde, der kan man faktisk få en måneds gratis abonnement. Det er fuldstændig uforpligtet, og vi tager ikke røven på nogen. Så man kan bare prøve en måned, og så kan man se derfra, om ikke man har fået en ven for livet. Jeg tror på det. I næste uge taler jeg så med den fransk-marokkanske forfatter, Leila Slimani. Vi taler om kvindekamp, vi taler om kolonialisme, Og vi taler om krig. Og så vil jeg gerne sige noget, som jeg glemmer hver eneste uge, og det er frygteligt pillet, For der er faktisk en kæmpe held bag det her program, og det er Anne Pilegaard-Petersen. Hver eneste uge, så tager hun mine samtaler, hvor jeg kommer til at tale alt for højt, og sikkert også alt for meget, og hvor vi ikke altid har den optimale lydkvalitet. Så tager hun og redder det, og sætter det hele sammen producerer vores udsendelser og gør, at det er noget, som man kan holde ud og lytte til. Så kæmpestort tak til Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Det er hende, der er vores held, og det er hende, der står for, at det hele hænger sammen. Tak for nu.